Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor at large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's conversation, we'll cover the recent high-profile cases of young conservative activists and writers who've been exposed to living something of a double life between their public personas and their private affiliations with and affirmations of far-right views, including anti-Semitism and other forms of racism. I'm grateful to speak with David about what these cases tell us about parts of the Anglo-American right what is drawing these young conservatives into these dark places? And what, if anything, can be done to stop it? David, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you. You were a young conservative once. So was I. There was something countercultural about it, particularly on campus. But I don't recall much exposure to what you might call far-right ideas or voices. The conservatives that I looked up to, including you, were solid in their conservatism, but also intellectually rigorous, generally affable and squarely in the mainstream of political debate. Am I looking back with misplaced nostalgia, or do you think something has changed? Something has, has changed. I mean, there were, there, were, there were always lures to extremism, and this is true for the young. As you're just the world's new, you're full of strong emotions, and you don't always have a sense of the serious, the potential seriousness of life, of, of your situation. So, you know, you know, everyone's going to the uh, this summer to the movie Oppenheimer and watching how someone as brilliant as that could be pulled toward communism in the 1930s. So these, this is something that's probably endemic to human nature. But I think what is go- what is going on now is as we've lived in the attention economy, that people are drawn to outrage. And I think there has been, a, uh, in the Trump years in particular, a, a real breakdown of moral restraint in, in the conservative world. I mean, if this is, if, when you look at what the so-called leaders are doing, when the president, the most uh, visible voices on ra- uh, radio and television, I mean, the, 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 through the Trump years, the most, and the, through, the, through the Trump years and the early Biden years, the most visible, the most high-profile conservative show on television was probably the most was Tucker Carlson, who was doing the most rate as tiptoeing as close to the edge of outright racism as there has been on broadcast media since maybe I don't know Father Coughlin. I mean, he, he went farther over the edge even than Rush Limbaugh, and Limbaugh could be very racially aggressive. So I think it's a real thing. I mean, in the two cases that we're talking about, one involved a person named Pedro Gonzalez, who was an editor at a magazine called Chronicles. The other involved a guy named Nate Hawkman. I don't think anybody's surprised at Pedro Gonzalez. I mean, Pedro Gonzalez was all but explicitly anti-Semitic in his public persona. And then it's no surprise that in his private discussions, he went over the line and made explicit what was always implicit. Um, I mean, in in this case, it's one of those, it's always the one you suspect the most. (laughs) Um, Hockman is sort of a more complicated case because this is someone who was a correspondent at National Review, published op-eds in the New York Times, looked, I mean, he was 
you know, not a heavyweight, but he, he looked like somebody who aspired to be to have a serious life in conservative and Republican politics. And then you discover that he's making these absurd videos with fascist iconography. What's that about? Yeah, to, to stay on our experiences for a minute, our formative periods as young conservatives were in a pre-internet or at least a pre-social media age. You mentioned the attention economy, David. What's the role of the internet and social media in your mind? How has it contributed to this tendency for young conservatives, particularly men, to fall into these destructive ideas and political behaviors? I don't know that I would regard it as a, as a contributor so much as an accelerant. I'd point to a couple of things that really are different in the world. For, for me, when I was I was born in 1960, I was in my 20s in the late 70s. I was in, I was in my 20s in the late 80s. I was sort of my formative years as a conservative in the late 70s. So I'm going to point to two things that really were um, uh, different. The, the first is that, especially in the 70s, so much of the mood of the progressivism of the time valued emotionalism. The 70s were, the, you know, the era of the heyday of pop psychology, you know, the heyday of, you know, the Bermuda Triangle and the uh, Amityville Horror. And so a lot of what pulled people, made people conservative was a distaste for excessive emotionalism in public life. So mm-hmm. it, that, that, that you are biased in favor of an excessive rationality. Um, but the, the thing that made you a conservative was you'd hear a story about how it's hard to get rent, how it was hard for people to afford rent in a city like Toronto. And the progressive point of view was to be very, was especially driven by the media of that time. A lot of sob stories about how terrible it was. And so what what pulled you toward conservatism was your fascination with the analytics of markets and why rent control didn't work. So if I remember my group, we were, the thing that made us was more rationalism than others, more distaste for emotionalism than others. But the second thing that was very different was conservatism in those days, it always tilted male for sure, but it was less repellent to women. It was less, it was less overwhelmingly and almost unanimously male than it has since become. And simply the presence of, of women had a moderating force. It, it, and it's sort of complicated to explain why, but you, you are not completely, it, it, the entry into conservatism was not a commitment, was not an exit from the world of marriage, family, children, normal life. In a way, I think that for a lot of people, their conservative community substitutes for the families that they're not going to form. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I want to turn on, on that note to some of the underlying impulses or ideas at play. Uh, one part of it, it seems to me, David, is a growing mentality of something approaching political radicalism. Conservatives may have some reasons to feel a bit alienated from certain institutions like universities or parts of the media or whatever, but the conservative impulse has historically been a reformist one rather than a revolutionary one. Yet we now have young conservatives reciting Curtis Yarvin and other radical online voices about the so-called cathedral and the need to tear down mainstream institutions. What explains the rise of this type of thinking and activism on the right? That's a great question. I think part of it is is intellectual despair. I remember a, a story that David Brooks told. He was on, at the University of Chicago where Milton Friedman was on the on the faculty, and he once took part in a student teacher debate against Milton Friedman. And David is a very attractive personality. People like him. And so Mrs. Friedman, who liked him a lot, before the debate gave him a word of advice. He said, Milton Friedman is Milton is going to ask you a question. Whatever the answer is, do say no. Because once you, yield, <laughs> once you yield Milton any premise 
the irresistible pull of his overwhelming logic will grab grab your ship and pull it. <laughs> you just you 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 start you yield one point to him and you're done for. Because, but there is a kind of optimism that you lock us in the room for long enough. And the force of conservative argument is just going to prevail. And, and yeah, it's very sad that that lady can't meet her rent. But I am going to prove to you that rent control is not going to work. I'm going to prove to you that m- nuclear power is under the circumstances the better, the best energy option for North America. I'm going to prove to you that uh, an economy with less regulation and lower taxes is going to do better for everybody. That, that we just and maybe we're wrong about those things, but we believe them. We we believe we could not only win power but win the argument. I think one of the things that's going on today, and Yarvin is an example of this, is that I think a lot of young conservatives think, well, we can win power, but we can't win arguments. So let's use the power to, as a substitute for winning the argument, because at least you know we've got the guns, we've got the police, we've got you know, and we've got the properly distributed voters. At least in the United States and Canada, it's different. Let's crush our enemies rather than convince them. Let me put another hypothesis to you. How much of it do you think may be that the limited government conservatism of, say, Ronald Reagan is kind of boring? It, by and large, provides the right answers on political economy, as you say, but it fails to fulfill deeper needs that people have for meaning, purpose, and even a sense of transcendence. It's kind of like Irving Kristol's old argument about two cheers for capitalism and the inherent metaphysical challenge that liberal capitalism faces. Does that explanation or idea resonate with you at all? It's an interesting point. I mean, it may be, but it, it was always true that limited government conservatism existed not to meet intellectual, not emotional or spiritual needs. I think the answer to that my peer group in 1982 would have said is those needs, you go to church, go to synagogue. You know, that's not our job. Our, our job is to tell you how to organize society so that people have security and prosperity. That's it. That, and to liberate you to find, you know, to give you the material wherewithal that you are now empowered to go find spiritual meaning on your own. That is not what politics is for. I, I think that I can hear myself saying that. That is not what politics is for. But conservatives are as affected as liberals by the collapse of organized religion and the, the fading of collective forms, broadly collective forms of spirituality. And for a lot of people, I think politics becomes the thing that the right always used to criticize about the left, which was that politics became a substitute for religion, is now true on the right, too. And so, yeah, so it becomes much more existential. I mean, I think one of the things that, again, if I think of the world in 1980, we had come off a period where a lot of the things we were arguing about had actually been tried. And we, so we could say, you know, you, the, the, reason there, the, the reason there are lines at gas stations is because there's a, there's a, a control of the price of fuel right now. We've tried it your way. Now let's try it our way. So, but we're talking about real tangible things. I think one more thing is a change in, in the nature of what the alternative is about. So the progressivism of the 30 years after the war was very much about material things. That people can come out of the experience of the Depression in World War II with the belief that the state could organize economic activity and deliver a better life for most, most people. And the experience of the 1970s was the discrediting of that belief. So because the progressive world was progressive, the conservative opposition was material. The conservative opposition tended to focus on material things to do. Today's progressivism is much more about culture. And so the conservatives become more about culture. And there's no compromise. There's a lot of compromise in material things. You know, you may believe that the optimal level of capital taxation is 15%. Somebody else thinks it should be 100%. There's, there's some number between 15 and 100 where 
people can converge. But on the issues of today, it's, it's hard to imagine those kinds of compromises. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Well, as I'm sure you're aware, Canadian news organizations are facing a more uncertain future these days, thanks to federal legislation requiring Google and Meta to pay for news. Big tech's threat to drop all news content in Canada could have a profound effect on many publishers. Some may well see their web traffic halved in the coming months. So what does this all mean for The Hub? Well, thankfully, as a donor-driven charity supported by individuals and foundations, The Hub is thriving. We're rolling out new series, adding new voices, and seeing record engagement across our platforms. The Hub will continue to innovate and thrive, regardless of the new legislation and whatever Google and Meta do. This is true independence. We treasure it, and maintaining it is our promise to you. If you value independent thinking on the big issues of the day, consider becoming a Hub donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I'm also struck, David, by the perverse incentives inherent in today's fragmented media market. It seems like certain right-wing journalists or personalities start on the edge of being mainstream, but slowly yet cumulatively are pulled in an irreversibly far-right direction with each incremental nod to edginess or norm-breaking or owning the libs. What are the market forces at play? In the media, they're obvious. I'm struck by the market forces in politics. So both Hockman and Gonzalez were, I believe, paid. I, I don't want to assert that as fact, but I believe they were paid employees of the DeSantis campaign. Certainly, they were in the DeSantis world and expecting some kind of reward, whether it was a regular paycheck or not. I th- I'm pretty sure Hockman had a regular paycheck. I don't know about Gonzalez. So where are the DeSantis people? I mean, it is no secret that Gonzalez is an anti-Semite on all but an anti-Semite. And if you're considering hiring this guy, you would, it would seem to me, have a real, well, first, someone would say, are you joking? Are you joking? You're even thinking about it? No, obviously not. But if somebody were pushing the idea, he can help us reach certain kinds of young people, you say, we need to do a real check. There's nothing here that can embarrass the governor. Mm-hmm. You know, having worked on political campaigns, the question, is there any, that, that the last question of the meeting is always, is there anything else that could embarrass the candidate? Is there anything we need to know that could embarrass the candidate? So I don't believe that the DeSantis operation was so slapdash that they didn't know. I, I believe they're making calculated risks. So there's a question here about them. I, when, I, when these stories broke, I, I tweeted that large parts of the DeSantis campaign. And by the way, it's not just DeSantis. There are people like this in the Trump world, and there are people like this in the Robert Kennedy world. And the Robert Kennedy campaign is a MAGA campaign. I don't know about Kennedy personally, who seems kind of clueless, but his 1488 tweet, there's someone running his social media who is knows that Kennedy is very popular with the far right and is appealing to the far right with their own versions of fascist appeal. So I think large parts of the, of the far right, of the conservative political world are a little bit, I compare them to the Austrian civil service after World War II, that they are employing lots of people with Nazi pasts and pretending not to know about it. But of course they know, or they easily could find out. If they don't know, it's because they don't want to know. And then it's a question, why didn't the DeSantis operation want to know that it was employing people with these tendencies? Yeah, you alluded earlier, David, to the difference between contributing factors and accelerants. Let me put it to you directly. 
What's the role of Donald Trump and other populist political figures? Are they contributing to this tendency or responding to it? One of the tendencies in politics is, is you sort of you start reasoning somewhere and then you realize if I follow this line of thought, it's going to lead to the conclusion that Donald Trump is a criminal. So I so I don't want to I know I don't want to reach the conclusion that Donald Trump is a criminal or a racist or any. So I have to I have to back up and avoid that whole line of thought. And so, yeah, it's just edginess, you tell yourself, because if it's not, if it's truly unacceptable, then the guy at the top of the ticket is unacceptable. If, if it's if you say it's an abs, if, if there's anybody in this operation who at any time has ever accept, said anything that could suggest that violence is an acceptable way of resolving political differences. They're out. I mean, and I don't like, you know, and I don't need it. I don't need your signature to it. I need like a hint. I need a whiff. I need that you were sitting next to the person who said that violence is acceptable and you didn't speak out. Any whiff. Well, the guy at the top says it all the time. <laughs> what did I say that the boss didn't say? And and that then it becomes hard to impose discipline. I mean, you know, Trump Trump's doing these appeals. Fox News is doing these appeals. How do you and everyone the people want to be the next star on Fox News? They, they do a little bit more. As far as they can see, they're doing just a, just a little bit more. I mean, really, what is the difference? You've supported and worked with a lot of young conservatives over the years. Uh, many leading voices in journalism and politics today got their start at From Forum and other projects that you've been involved in. Talk about what we can do to stop people from falling down this path. What is the role of mainstream figures to stop the young from heading towards an irreversible direction that will change their professional and, and personal lives forever? Well, first, thank you for saying that. I, I don't know that I have been terribly successful. One of the people who got his start from Forum, had his first byline there, was, was J.D. Vance. And when I knew him, was a very moderate person who I thought was on the way to being you know, a really useful figure in American politics, speaking up for the concerns of, of rural America and, and look at him now, you know, one of the worst of the worst. So I, I can't say that I, I have an answer because, you know, I have a lot of failures. But I, I think the most imp important thing you can do, the, the less important thing you can do is warn people. The more important thing you can do is, is inspire them and to say, and to try to reach something positive and then say, first, this stuff you're talking about is not part of your ideal. Here are the ideals. Here's what's exciting. Here's what's exciting. You know, you know, you can look at all this incredible improvement. And these are the things we can we can do if we gain if we are trusted by the voters with political power. And you can be a part of it if you don't screw up your career. And you should be excited at the thought that um, you can expand human dignity and expand human potential and expand, expand human well-being, that these are exciting things. That should be enough. And the idea of, look, I'm not going to pretend I'm blameless on the temptation to, to make score the cheap point or get the cheap laugh or impress your friends with the snotty comment. I've done all of those things. And and I didn't stop when I turned 30 either. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm not holding myself out here as, as beyond reproach. But I, I think if it, you have that, I think there's a larger problem. Here. The reason you're attracting so many unlovely people to conservatism is because conservatism has become unlovely itself. And if you, if you want to attract better people, uh, you have to have a better cause. And uh, and then, and, and then you still have to, as on as they as like the British Labour Party did, you have to have you have to have a battle against entryism. I mean, in the olden days, the British Labour Party used to have a list of organisations that said, if you have been involved with any of these organisations, you can never be a member of the Labour Party, at least unless you satisfy a committee 
that you have completely broken your links with anything Stalinist, anything revolutionary, anything that's ever advocated violence. And that lapsed and they got Jeremy Corbyn. I think they're now once again involved in the battle against entryism, as they call it in Britain. So conservatism needs its own struggle against entryism. But in this case, it's a bigger fight because it's not just that you have a healthy body that is trying to protect itself from infiltration. You have a fundamentally unhealthy body that is at the highest level fascinated by racist ideas, by fascist ideas, and above all, by the allure of violence and crushing opponents rather than convincing them. So how do you, how do, how do the, when the old are bad, how do you make the young better? Well, this is such an important conversation for which I'm grateful to have had with you. And I should just say your example and model has been important to me in my life. You came of age in 1982. I was born in 1982. And so you were you were increasingly a prominent finger in conservative circles, both in Canada and the U.S. And I, you know, I, I hope to some extent that I've followed your path in my own work. But before we wrap up, I have to ask you something completely different than what we've been talking about. Many of our listeners and viewers may not know, but there's a major cricket tournament going on in the city of Toronto over the past several weeks. And it's striking to me, David, that notwithstanding all of the increasing diversity that we have in our country and the way in which that's expressing itself and new and different cultural activities and, and interest in different recreational activities and so on, cricket hasn't seemingly took off. What's your, what's your hypothesis? Yeah, no, I, I, we were talking about this before. It's something I've often wondered about, which is Australia has cricket, New Zealand has cricket, India has cricket. It's obviously a British invention, but many of the British colonies took it to heart. And Canada never took it to heart. And the only reason there's any cricket in Canada now is because of recent immigrants from other places where the British made a deeper impress. And so, I mean, Canada was such a foundational British society for so long, and yet cricket never took off. So I've often wondered why not. So I've got a couple of theories and I want to, let me just throw them on the table and you can debunk each of them. Please do. The first is weather. That cricket is a warm weather event, but you need grass. And in Canada in the summer, the grass is just too dry. But you think, you know what, that, that's really not a very, very good answer because I, I, I bet the grass is pretty dry in Jamaica in the summertime too. <laughs> and they love cricket. Maybe it's, you know, the enormous influence of, of the United States, but is the enormous influence of the United States any less than the Caribbean? than it is in Canada. I, I don't think so. I, I think there's just something about how it is an indication how for as much as Canadians talk about Canada as a settler society and a colonized society, the British impress here was really less. It was on very much on political institutions, but not so much on cultural institutions. And I, I think it is a sign of how, of the way that Britishness didn't graft in Canada, that cricket never took on in the way that it did. But I'm open to better ideas. It is, it is a fascinating little Canadian mis- origin story mystery why it didn't sprout here. Yeah, well, it's a it's fascinating theories. I think there's obviously something to them. But your underlying point that at its core, Canada is a North American culture and has taken on North American ideals and values and even cultural preferences is something that shouldn't be forgotten. It has relevance even today, David, as we debate whether to extend the CanCon regulations to streaming services as if Canadians are committed to their own cultural content. The truth is that we're North Americans in so many ways, and we shouldn't be self-conscious about that. It should be something actually that we're quite proud about and, and maybe to go full circle, something that Canadian conservatives ought to be proud of as well. 
David, I want to thank you for joining me, as I said, on such a, I think, important conversation. I'm glad that we could have it here at The Hub, and I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Frum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Gletch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. <laughs>